Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Alrighty, if you'd like to grab your Bibles, we're going to start with a Bible reading. Um, we're reading from Mark 9 today, uh, Mark 9, 30 through to 50. Um, there are some pew Bibles at the end of each row. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible, feel free to grab one of them. And it's on page 1569. Um, so Mark 9, 30 through to 50. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Also just want to say thank you to Tran, who's coming to share the word with us this morning. Very last minute. So, yeah, we're just really thankful for you and excited to hear you preach this morning. Yeah. Thanks, Lauren. Appreciate it. Let me just get set up here. How are we doing, guys? Good? Great. Vocal. I love that. How good. How good. Um, man, it's a, such a good day to be bringing the word. Uh, classic Jacko move, just stitching me up last minute. Just like, I'm, I know you're watching, man. I know you're watching. Um, yeah. Um, if you are new here, if you're a newcomer, if you're not a Christian, man, I am so glad that you're in the house of God today. Like, um, like I'm double welcome to you. Uh, if you want to connect, I'd love to connect with you um, after, after church as well. That'd be great. More stitch-ups, that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, especially if you're a non-Christian as well um, and you don't know what this Jesus thing is about, like, hey, let's talk about Jesus. I, I, he has some interesting propositions I'd like, I think you'd like to hear him about, you know, on about. Um, before we uh, get into today's message, I want to spend a quick couple of, like, maybe like 30 seconds, maybe a minute, turn to your neighbour and ask them, who is the greatest? Is it LeBron or Michael Jordan. 30 seconds, LeBron or Michael Jordan. Who's the greatest? Let's go. 
Lots of chatter, lots of chatter. That's good. That's good. Got some consensus going on, hopefully. All right, let's do it. Let's come back. Let's come back. Raise your hand. Raise your hand, Team LeBron. Okay. So a few, a few. Okay. Anyone, Team, team MJ? Okay, it's about half, half. All right. Anyone's like, who cares? I don't know who these guys are. <laughs> That's okay. Anyone, anyone Tom Brady guys at all? At all? Anyone? Okay, a few, few people. All right. Um, well, this is a hotly contested topic amongst like sports journals, barbershop, barbershop quartets, and mere mortals like you and me. We, we, we discuss about who the greatest is all the time. But when it comes to the greatest of all time, when it comes to the GOAT, how do you measure that? How do you measure what the GOAT is? Like, what, do you, what stats do you look at? Do you look at who is more clutch? Do you look at who is better in the postseason? Do you look at who was uh, played in like the harder league of the day? Do you look at who had, like, who had worse or better teammates? Do you, do you, or do you, how they elevated their teammates potentially? Uh, and most importantly, do you look at how many championships they won? Maybe, maybe that's what you look at to see what the goat, who the GOAT is. But the Bible might not say who the greatest of all time, who the greatest of all time is in terms of basketball, but it does tell us what true greatness is. And that's what our text is about today. Um, if you joined us um, and you uh, were, uh, if you're joining us for the first time today, um, we're starting the second half of our Mark series. We're calling it Servant King. Um, and the context of this particular passage in Mark is that, well, it's where it was, we're in the second act of Mark, and the first act of Mark essentially was exploring who Jesus was in the first eight chapters or so. Um, and you saw time and time again that the disciples did not understand who Jesus said he was, what he was going on about, right? You saw that time and time again. You saw that even last week with the transfiguration. Um, and they didn't understand who Jesus was, and they didn't understand what he came to do. Um, and as a result, they didn't understand what it meant to actually follow Jesus. Um, so what you see here in this passage is that Jesus teaches them what it means to follow his greatness. So the big idea today is this. I want you to just, if you're writing notes, the big idea is this. Jesus showed his greatness by dying as a servant. Jesus shows his greatness by dying as a servant. And I think Mark explores this particular idea in three ways. He calls us to discipleship and explores this idea in three ways. Firstly, he, call, he, he, he explores the greatness of Jesus' humility. And then he talks about the significance of accepting those who are insignificant. And lastly, he talks about the impact of intentional holiness. Now those sounds like a lot of words, so we're, we're gonna, I'm gonna unpack the text today. Let's pray, ask God for uh, him to help us unpack his word this morning. Um, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and that you speak through it. Help us to hear from you this morning uh, that the words I speak aren't just, just my own words, but they're actually your words transform us as we encounter you this morning. May we go leaving here shining brighter than we did today, uh, coming, than coming in this morning. Um, Spirit, I pray that you help me preach with clarity and conviction. 
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Okay, so as I said before, Mark kind of explores this particular passage in three kind of sections. The first one being Jesus, the greatness of Jesus' humility. You see, the start of this passage, uh, you might not have noticed, but it's, if, if you recall back to maybe to Mark 8, uh, you might have heard Jesus say something similar. He says this in Mark 8, 31. He says, um, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed after, and after three days rise again. And in fact, in Mark, what happens, Jesus predicts his death three times. This is the second time that he does that. Um, and each time Mark is d- telling them about him going to die, um, Jesus is actually trying to teach them what it means to follow him, what it means to be a disciple. Let's read verses 30 to 32 together. This is this. They left the place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Now, I don't know about you, but this sounds pretty clear, right? It sounds pretty clear. It's not like Jesus is being ultra cryptic or unusual or he's doing a parable or something like that. It sounds pretty clear. Jesus is pretty much telling them straight up, yo, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get backstabbed pretty soon and they're going to kill me, but I'm coming back. It's pretty simple, right? It's pretty straightforward. There's nothing cryptic about that at all. So why does Mark tell us here that the disciples did not understand Oh, in verse 32, it says, it doesn't say, um, here, it, it doesn't say directly in here, but the context is here this. Um, the disciples thought that Jesus wasn't just uh, this, that they thought that they knew that he was the Messiah, but they thought that he was their liberator. He had come to liberate them from their oppressors, from the Roman Empire. And so when Jesus tells them that he's going to die in, at the hands of these people and not liberate them, there's a disconnect between the disciples' expectations and the reality of what Jesus has said. That's why they were afraid to ask. That's why they were afraid to ask because they, didn't, they were afraid to get the answer that they might not want to get. And you can see why they didn't ask. It would, reveal, it would reveal their hearts. And they get revealed anyway in verses 33 and 34. It says this. They came to Capernaum. Um, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued who was the greatest. It's kind of like saying this. Jesus was, imagine the scene. They're walking to Capernaum. And Jesus uh, is talking and telling them, I'm going to die. This is what it means to follow me. And then Jesus asked them, what are you talking about? It's like, and the disciples are just sheepishly like, um, they're kind of like kids getting caught red-handed. Right? You, know, you know that feeling when, I don't know if you were a kid and you got, your hand was stuck in the quickie jar and you got caught red-handed, that kind of deal? And the reaction of the disciples showed the guiltiness of their hearts. They knew what they were talking about was not something that what it would be like. What would be what it was not something that would reflected what being a disciple looked like. They knew their hearts were in the wrong. 
Now, when we hear about people talking about being the greatest or I'm great at this particular thing, whatever, we, our natural inclination is to kind of step back a little. It's kind of to be repulsed by it a little bit because we, we naturally doubt people's claims about being, them being the greatest, right? Are you, are you like truly great at this thing? That's what we think. And for the disciple, and so for the disciples to argue who was actually greatest among them, they actually forgot something. They actually forgot that the greatest among them was standing, leading them right there. It's ironic. It's really ironic. If you zoom out of this narrative for a second, if you, if you see the whole chapter in context, the backdrop of this passage is the transfiguration. We talked about that last week. The transfiguration where Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. Listen to him. You want to see greatness? Jesus blazing his clothes wider than white. How does that even work? That's the kind of greatness Jesus has. You want to talk about greatness? The voice of God said, this is my son. You want to talk about greatness? In the passage, just like literally just a few verses before this, it said that Jesus was the only one that had the power to cast out demons the other, because the other disciples did not, couldn't do it. That's true greatness. That's real greatness. Yet the disciples were more concerned with what? With puffing up their ego? Now, there's nothing wrong with knowing your value or knowing if you're good at something or if you're talented at a particular thing. Um, but let's look at this passage and reflect on it for a second. What, what does it mean to be a disciple? Well, a disciple is someone who is a learner, a, a learner of Christ, a student of Christ. So when Christ talks about dying, the disciples are showing that they really haven't learned to be like Jesus yet. And so what does Jesus do? Verse 35 says this. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. It's interesting that he sits, sits down and kind of think of, the, think of the scene again, like a, like a parent sitting down to their child, teaching them, like a teaching opportunity. And Jesus sits down with these spiritually immature infants and teaches them something too, teaches them that greatness in the kingdom of God is actually completely opposite to what they thought it was. Greatness in the kingdom of God was actually completely opposite to what they thought it was. Jesus was the greatest servant of all because he had given up everything he had to serve us. He gave up his spot on the throne of heaven, condescended himself, and became like his creation, lived the perfect life, and died as a ransom for many so that imperfect people like you and me could be called children of the Most High. Greatness is not simply determined by power and authority that one has, but is by how that power and authority is used. Greatness is not just simply power and authority, but how it is used. And how did Jesus use his power and authority? He came, he was the king that became a pauper and died for his people. Jesus' servanthood to all of us is true greatness. But the problem is, we're like the disciples. If we're honest, we're just like the disciples because we argue amongst ourselves 
who is the greatest? Maybe not amongst our friends, but in our minds? I mean, we're all human. We all want to puff up our own sense of greatness. Maybe not publicly, but deep down, our hearts are inclined that way. Jesus' ethic of greatness as servanthood flies in the face of our me-first, individualistic Western culture. And like, to be honest, I think, I think all of us can identify with this. We are all subtly trying to find our identity and our value in, by our own means and achievements, whether it be like climbing the corporate ladder or finding our influence on Facebook or we flex our affluence on Instagram, or maybe it's by our virtual signaling or our moral superiority. It doesn't matter which end of the political spectrum you are. Or maybe it's by boasting in our talents and our deeds. When we think about it, we didn't actually, get the, we didn't actually make these things. God gave it to us, right? And yet we have the audacity to say, like, to boast in these things. And we do all of this in the name of self-confidence and self-esteem. The human, hearts, the human heart seeks to be the greatest, but we already forget that that title belongs to Jesus, to King Jesus already. And the thing is, Jesus didn't forsake his worth and value and his godness when he came and died for his people. In Philippians 2, we know that. It tells us that Jesus knew of his equality of God but did not count something to be grasped on, to be taken advantage of, but he emptied himself. He, he emptied and gave it up for us. And that's the same with us. We don't lose our worth when we serve others. Rather, we are able to, we are able to serve others because God has imparted his infinite value to us already through his son. If you're a Christian here today, I implore you, don't forget about Jesus being the greatest. Rather, treasure him because that greatest is yours. When we do, when we do that, we, we have the key to know, knowing what is, how to be truly great because we are able to be like Christ. We are able to serve all. Now you might be wondering, what does it mean to be a servant of all? What does that practically look like, Tran? Well, um, I think Mark talks about that a little bit in like the second point we won't get through here. Um, and I think that's reflected in the significance of accepting the insignificant. We're gonna read verses 36 to 37, it says this. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now, in my time of being a Christian, I've heard this passage quoted a lot of times, and it says, like, they say, like, you know, Jesus loves kids. And yeah, absolutely, Jesus does love children, for sure. But Jesus, I think Mark is trying to say something much more significant and profound than just Jesus loves kids here. In Matthew, the same passage actually comes up, but the lesson there is to become like the child. But I think Mark here, the author, is trying to do something very deliberate in omitting that part of the story. You see, kids in the Middle East 2,000 years ago were considered the lowest in society, the absolute lowest, because they were under the authority and care of others, and they did not have the right to self-determine or do whatever they want. 
They were truly the last and the least in society. In that time, you wouldn't even consider children. But what is the command that Jesus is saying here? The verb here is welcome. Jesus calls his disciples to welcome the lowly people in society, to accept them, to receive them, these people, these children. So in reality, when Jesus calls his disciples to be servant of all, Jesus expected his disciples to gladly invite, to welcome, to receive, to accept those in society who are considered the most insignificant. This puts into picture what Jesus meant for them to be least of all and servant to all. And this is a hard ask for them because of what, what did it mean for them? It meant that they had to give up their prestige and their comfort and their sense of honor and pride. And they had to give up what they thought it was like to be a follower of Jesus and then actually follow Jesus. And that's the same with us. As Jesus' disciples, Jesus is calling ourselves to lower ourselves beneath those who are lowest in society, to welcome them and to serve them. But there is something, insig- something significant about accepting the insignificant society. And Jesus promises something when we do so. In verse 37, it says this, that whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. It welcomes me. Now you might be wondering, what is, what is Jesus actually saying here? Is he saying that somehow Jesus is, is like the spirit of the child, is in the child, and if I welcome Jesus, that, 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 that's, how, that's how it works? No, I, don't, I don't think he's actually saying that. What I think he's saying is this. When you receive, sorry, what Jesus is saying is that if the disciples were to receive those who are insignificant in society, they have already shown They've already shown that they've already accepted Jesus into their lives. That's what he's trying to say here. And if they receive Jesus in their lives, they don't just receive him, but they also receive God the Father. So as Christians who profess the name of Jesus, when you or I accept those who are deemed insignificant, it reflects the reality that we have received God into our lives. It shows that we are truly his disciples, right? But it's funny when you look at the, the following part of this passage in verses 38 to 41. I'll read it out for you. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told, him not, we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me for whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. Now, on initial glance here, this sounds like a really random kind of interject passage in the middle of Mark here. But I think Mark puts it in here for a very good reason. Even after being sheepishly silent about arguing who was the greatest, and Jesus had that little teaching word with them, the disciples still didn't get it. <laughs> John didn't get it. It's a classic disciple move, by the way. Like, notice here the reason why John is upset with other people casting out demons in Jesus' name. He, he thought that if people, like, you would have thought like if people were 
you know, being, if people were being um, released from the position of demons and stuff, left, right, and center, like, it doesn't matter where it's coming from. If it's done in Jesus' name, that's a pretty good thing, right? You thought that would have been a win-win situation, right? Like, Jesus gets the glory, Saint gets the beating, like, it, he takes the L, right? It's, you thought that would have been, you thought that would have been a good deal. But John's reasoning was that he wasn't following us. This random dude was not following them. You see, like, back then, in, uh, if you go back to, like, say, Mark 6, for example, Jesus commissions the disciples to walk out, and he sent them out two by two, and he had, uh, they had authority over all unclean spirits. Now, if you had, like, if, if you were me, let's be honest, if we had the ability to cast out demons left, right, and center, that'd be kind of cool, right? We kind of walk with a bit of swagger. It would prop up our pride a little bit because no one else can really do this. But now all of a sudden, Jesus is see- no, John is seeing this person who is not part of the original 12, is casting out demons, and he's like, he's, he can't do it because he's not in our little club. That is so petty. When we think about it, this is completely polar opposite to what Jesus had been teaching them about. Jesus had been teaching them about to be lowly and to accept those in, in, in the lowest in, in, in society. And he, here comes John complaining that he, this guy is not allowed to have this power because he's not elite like us. John's refusal to accept someone considered, he considered like just a little bit lower than him revealed that he did not understand what Jesus was actually on about. And yet the significance of accepting the insignificant in Jesus' name is evidence that you understand the gospel. It's, understand, it's evidence that you are truly one of his disciples. Now, it, sound, it might sound like a good idea to accept those who are lowly in society. It sounds like a really easy thing to hear, but in reality, it's actually much harder than, it's much harder than that because it will push us out of our comfort zone. Like, I just want a real talk for a sec. Um, this message here uh, was preached, uh, I preached this message a few weeks ago to another church, but I think it's also very, very important for us to hear this today. Um, I think the biggest issue in the Western church is not that we don't know who the least in our society is, but I think, and this, this is also reflective of my heart as well, I think it's just that we're apathetic. I think, it's, this is a hard word, like, like, I think we just don't care enough. I'm not trying to guilt trip, trip us here. Uh, this applies to all of us. Um, and I argue we all fall short here. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with like, supporting a kid through compassion or world vision or giving foreign aid. And, and I'm like, if you are, that's great, like, keep doing that. But I'll, my challenge to all of us, and this includes myself, is that, I want to question, what does my heart naturally do when I see that homeless guy down the street when I walk to work? Where does my heart go when I see that, you know, that family down the street? Can we say that our lives are marked by the, gladly, the glad welcoming of those lowly in our community, in our society? Whether it be like, you know, the immigrant, the refugee, the indigenous, the poor, the mentally ill, the disabled, the homeless. And that's a tough challenge because loving the lowly doesn't just demand our money. 
It demands our time. <laughs> it demands our time. It demands our patience, our effort, our energy. How, how, how first class, how first class okay, of a problem is it that we can say that it's not a problem of money, it's a, it's a problem of our time. And you might be thinking, Andrew, are you asking me to fix all the world's problems? Are you fixing me? Are you, I can't do that, Tran. I can't do that. There's too many issues. How, there's too many issues to fix. How do you fix these systemic issues in culture? How do, like, do, you, not how, do you not know how big the indigenous problem is? Or how, how, do you know how hard it is to lift people out of poverty? It's just too hard, Tran. And I agree. I agree. It's really, really, really hard. But Jesus isn't asking us or the disciples here to fix the world because you know what? the world already has a savior. But if there is power that can resurrect Jesus from the dead, surely that same power can use your little contribution to the world, right? Is not God sovereign? Is he not mighty? Is he not all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful? He's placed us here in this specific place in, for the, in this particular time for a particular reason. We are his workmanship and God has put good works for us to walk in. God will not be hamstrung by how many people you serve in your life or how quote unquote successful your, your loving is. But God does call us to obedience as a response to his grace for us. And that obedience looks like intentional holiness. Follow me in verse 42. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Jesus does not mince his words here, friends. We're in the same episode here. The child is still there. Like in front of them, and Jesus, this is the, still the same episode. And Jesus is saying that if you use my name and you serve this person, but you behave in a way that makes this person lose their faith, it's better if you just neck yourself. That's, that's the words that Jesus is doing, because it's better that you just neck yourself because you're not doing yourself any favors. That's what Jesus is saying here. I, put, I read a commentary and I put it this way. Um, the disciple is not to be a stumbling block to the last and the least. A refusal to receive these little ones, quote unquote, is nothing less than hubris and conceit, which will also get its appropriate reward. You see, if you are a, if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you are a learner of Jesus, everything you do in his name, you do everything in his name, and your life is to imitate him. This is why Jesus continues the way he does in verses 43 to 48. I'll read it out for you. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell and where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet, be thrown, than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
You can see that this section of the text is pretty concerned about avoiding hell. It talks about the seriousness of sin and the consequences of indulging in it. Now, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you would have probably heard these verses and understood them to be, you should, just avo- you should avoid sin with everything you got. And absolutely true, this is something you can take from that particular passage. And, but we think of, but when, you, when we think of this passage, oftentimes we think of it in terms of we should avoid behaviors that are quote-unquote morally wrong in the eyes of God. And this is true. But I think Jesus is saying something much more profound than just avoiding morally wrong things. You see, holiness is not just about merely avoiding morally wrong things. This is really important. Holiness is not just avoiding merely, merely avoiding morally wrong choices. And this is important for you to understand if you're a Christian. Because ultimately, holiness is actually being like Christ. It's being like Christ. And when we fail to be like Christ, that is what sin is. That is what sin really is. When, you, when we fall short of the glory of God, when we, when we fall short in our, in our actions of our hands, the words of our mouth, and the, the, the thoughts in our minds. Mark is trying to tell us in this passage overall that the disciples are to squelch out not just the behaviors, but all inclinations that run contrary to the character of Jesus. The heart, problem, the heart of the problem is really the problem of the heart. And this is not just for the sake of the disciple, but also for the sake of those who they are serving, for not adverse, adversely effect, impacting the faith of those who they are serving. Now, I don't know if you've read much about, um, if you've been on Christian Twitter lately or just um, read Christianity Today lately or not, but... Um, in the last couple of years, especially in the last few months, um, it's, Christian leaders have not done very well. <laughs> I can put it that way. I'm not going to name names or anything like that, but we have had huge Christian leaders, like, like people that we look up to, um, almost like as celebrities kind of, and we see them fail in their lives personally, in their personal lives. And some of this is really, really recent. And... I can't imagine the kind of impact that that has on their ministry. More importantly, I can't imagine the kind of impact that would have on the lives of people who were involved in these ministries or how they ministered to. And for me, I personally looked up to some of these people. Um, and fortunately for me, my faith was not rocked, but it certainly made me question things I had learned from them. And like, this is just me from consuming their content from a distance. I can't imagine the, the, the damage that is done to those. If you looked up to, if you are a lowly person in society and you're, you came to faith and you saw that your person that, you was, that was serving you betrayed in this way, like, that'll make you question, what's this, is this message even real? This is why Jesus tells his disciples here to pursue holiness because holiness, being like Jesus, directly affects our witness and our service. That's what you find. But the thing is, pursuing holiness is costly. Pursuing being like Jesus is costly. And you see this in verses 49 to 50. Um, he says here, Every, he says here, everyone will be salted with fire. 
Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Now, reading this little last part of the passage, it's a bit of a challenge to understand what the exact meaning here, but it's a case of mixed metaphors and images. But I believe there's something important Mark wants to say here about the cost of discipleship. When it says in verse 49 that everyone will be salted with fire, it's actually a, 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 um, an allusion to uh, the sacrificial system in Leviticus, specifically Leviticus 2.13, where um, th- this is where you get a grain offering and you salt it beforehand like salt bay, and then you put it in the fire as a sacrifice. But instead of grain, the thing that was to be sacrificed here was the, the lives of the disciples themselves. They were to be the living sacrifices to the Lord. And being humble and lowly comes at a cost. And that cost often means suffering. But like the fire burning and offering, God uses that fire of suffering to refine the disciples. And, the, the, and we've seen from the early in the passage, well actually we, the, all the gospels, you see the disciples need refining and we need refining just like them. We saw them squabbling early in the passage about who is the greatest. And so it's not easy, it's not going to be easy for them to become like salt, like Jesus has called them to be. Um, If you're wondering, salt in the ancient world was used as a preservative, as a cleansing agent, as flavoring. And the disciples were meant to be salty in society, to preserve what was good, to cleanse and to be, and to give life to, to society. And suffering is one of the best ways God makes his people like salt. The only way the disciples were going to have salt among themselves if they were, is if they, were low, if they were going to lower themselves to the point of suffering for it. And that's the question I think Mark wants to leave you and I today. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, I think this, if, we, if we claim Jesus to be our absolute everything, are we willing to be salted with fire and become salty? Are we willing to lower ourselves beneath the lowest in society, suffer for it, to love them and serve them because Jesus has done for us so? This is not going to be an easy thing to do, brothers and sisters. This is not easy because it runs contrary to our hearts. But to follow Jesus means that you not just accept him as savior, but you accept him as your king and you are to follow his ways. And the thing is, if Jesus is your absolute everything, my question to you then is, if we're not lowering ourselves to love and serve those lowest in society, What are those things that are roadblocks between us doing that? What are are those roadblocks that are affecting us, uh, that are drawing us away from being like Jesus? I ask and pray that you think about that today and you bring that to, to, to the Lord this morning. The greatest of all time, the goat, Jesus himself, showed his greatness by suffering and dying as a servant. Jesus gave up everything for us so we could be in right relationship with the Father. 
And he's given us the prototype to how, on how to serve the, the last and the least in the world when he came for us. I want to encourage us that, to remember that you know, if we have Jesus, we have everything we could possibly ever need. We have everything we could possibly ever need. Everything we have else is icing on the cake. Um, if we have all our meaning and value wrapped up in him, we are free people. We are liberated from our chains of self-esteem. And we don't have to live for ourselves anymore, but we can live to serve others and ultimately serve for the glory of God. As Jesus' disciples this morning, my, my hope and prayer is that we imitate not just his words and his actions, but his heart as well. Let's ask God to do that this morning with us. Why don't you, um, why don't you pray with me? Um, as we pray this morning, I want, um, I'm going to just do a quick exercise. Want, um, maybe close your eyes for a sec. I want you to um, ask God uh, to bring to mind um, who Jesus is to you. Ask God that you, he help you become more like Jesus and ask God to bring to mind someone that you know is lowly in society, someone that you know that you can serve. I'll give you some time. Lord Father, we just thank you for the gift of Christ. We thank you that how, how amazing he is, how lovely he is, how beautiful and majestic his name is. Help, him, help us to see him for all he is. Help us to be enamored by that. Lord, we pray that um, as your disciples, Help us to be like him. Help us to forget about ourselves. To consider ourselves less and consider you more. Help us to lower ourselves to the point of suffering for those who don't know you, but also for those who are just low in society, who are outcasts, who are insignificant. May this reflect um, the true state of our hearts. May this be the cry of our souls, Lord Father. Help us to give up our comfort, our pride, um, our just ease of life. Help us to willingly enter into your suffering because you did so for us. What joy it is to know you because Jesus did everything for us to, to be reconciled to you. Lord, we love you. We love you. Um, um, we love Jesus, and we pray that um, you be the apple of our eye this week. And we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful, and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.